0: Church, I don't know how many of you remember this movie. Anybody remember the movie Facing the Giants? Anybody see that? Yeah, that was produced by Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia, and the story there was about Shiloh High School, the Eagles, and their football coach, Coach Grant, uh, neither of which, if you're a football fan, neither of which had done anything newsworthy during the six years of Coach Grant's tenure there as their high school football coach, yet they started in their seventh year, and here was the one thing he decided to do as this man was growing in his spiritual journey. He Decided that he and his players would do everything they did effort or made effort at that year for the honor of the Lord. He said, If I don't teach my boys anything else, if we don't even learn fundamentals of football, we're going to devote this season and dedicate this season to the service of God. And he really set out to do that. Well, what you see in the movie, those of you who remember it, that didn't remove all the struggle from his own life. At the same time, while he's trying to devote this season and dedicate this season to the Lord and get these young men to devote their efforts to the Lord, behind the scenes there are people calling for his job because in football, if you don't win, you don't stay. That's just kind of the way it works. And so all of this is going on, yet you start to see a transition in the lives of these young men. They really do start coming around each other, solidifying as a team, but also supporting their coach and some folks who are very spiritually mature, starting to to grow and support the coach, and you know how the movie goes, it's a great movie, has a happy ending, they make it all the way to the state championship, and they're facing the Giants, coached by, if y'all don't remember, down in the bottom right-hand side, this was the lollipop-licking Bobby Lee Duke, and Bobby Lee's one of my favorite coaches of all times, I mean, he was a steamroller kind of guy. And yet, y'all know the game came down to the last second, and it was a field goal, and this kid who hadn't made anything all year long kicks this miraculous field goal. And the whole point of the story was very simple, that those things that God is blessed, those things that stand in opposition to the Lord are things that he actually removes when those people who are serving him seek to glorify him. And I want to share with you then a real-life story that promotes the exact same story. And you're like, no, wait a minute. We're going to be preaching football today. No, the answer is no. I know some of you got your football feel yesterday. Uh, But here's the deal. Today, we're going to be talking about this same idea, that those standing in opposition of the Lord really are going to come up against something harder than they transcribe or transsee. And so here's the deal. We're going to be talking about Acts chapter 12 and 13, where we see some opposition to the church. We're going to talk about Herod Agrippa, but not the work of Herod Agrippa, the end of Herod Agrippa, a really odd story. And then we're going to talk about a sorcerer named Elimus. and Elimus, not his flourishing, but his downfall. And what we're going to lead into then is this simple thought that I want you to really focus on as we go through this text, is that those who stand in opposition of the Lord don't stand a chance. And here's the deal, it's not just people. We're talking about circumstances and situations, and Paul clarified powers and demons and authorities. Anything that stands in opposition of the Lord doesn't stand a chance. Now, some of you today might really need to hear this. Some of you are facing surgeries this next week, and you've got illnesses that you're battling. You've got issues within your family. All those things we've talked about. Here's the deal Satan even though he's powerful, doesn't stand a chance in the end. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate that fact, but we're going to talk about what that means for me and you. What do we do about this fact? So since we know that those that stand in opposition of the Lord don't stand a chance, there's a couple things we need to consider. Number one, that we're not in opposition of the Lord ourselves. And then number two, what does that mean for the things in my life that are in opposition to the Lord? What, what do I, what can I do with those things? So I want you to pray with me and we're going to study again. We're going to be in verse 20 of chapter 12 and then cover down through the first few verses of chapter 13. So let's pray. Let's get our hearts and our minds ready to study. Father, thank you for giving us a chance to come into this room and, and offer you praise. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful crisp weather. Uh, Lord, I myself, as you know... I'm a warm weather kind of guy, but Lord, it was absolutely beautiful Uh, watching some of the fog this morning on the lake, looking at the frost on top of the rooftops. We thank you that chiggers and other things are going to take a break for a while, so we thank you for change in season. We thank you that you control all of those things. Thank you that you control this moment. That in this moment, that Father, if we seek you, you say we will find you. So Father, we're seeking you through the inspired word that you've given us, which is not a book about you, it is this revelation text that is from you. So reveal to us today what you would have us learn about you. Give us wisdom then to understand what you're teaching us about you. Give us greater wisdom then to apply the truths that you do reveal about yourself to us. But Father, I do pray that you would gift us with faith today to understand that this principle is not a story. Father, this principle is absolute truth that anything, anyone who stands in opposition to you does not stand a chance. You are almighty God. As Richard was leading us to sing, you are Lord God almighty. And we pray that you would give us wisdom to see that fact this morning in the words of this text. Father, we love you. We praise you that you're answering yes to our requests, for we're praying the words of Scripture themselves. And so, Father, thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me, if you would, starting there in verse 20 out of chapter 12. Again, we're talking about Herod Agrippa, and we'll kind of recite and go back over who he is in just a minute. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. And you go, what does this have to do with Forsyth in 2019? Uh, Not a whole lot, except for the fact Herod's going to have a whole lot to do with Forsyth here in just a minute. Remember, this is Herod. This is the great grandson of Herod the Great. This is Agrippa I. We talked about him last week. is a Roman political ploy. They they are very connected in Rome. He and his mom in particular, two of his best friends turn out to be emperors. Caligula and Claudius. These are some of the most violent men in Roman history. They've placed him as king. Uh, unfortunately, he hasn't grown up as a Jew, and yet now he is the king of the entire nation of Israel once again. It's first time it's happened since his great granddad. And yet, one of the things that, that we're going to see in his life, which very much parallels his great granddad, is he views himself very, very highly. And so you've heard of Tyre and Sidon these go back to the Old Testament they've got this little this little political tiff going on and yet Tyre and Sidon are dependent upon Rome for their food and, and so what they've done is to get an inside with Rome. They have come to know Blastus, and Blastus is defined here as the man that's in charge of the king's bedroom. So you know how the queens would have like a bunch of lady servants that tended to them? The king also had like a male servant who was the head male servant who took care of everything, making sure his bath water was the right temperature, making sure that his wine had been tested by the taster, that his food had been tested to make sure it wasn't poison. So, so it's kind of like the head manservant. This guy really has the king's ear all the time. And somehow these messengers of Tyre and Sidon have gotten to know Blastus. Maybe he he came from there. We really don't know all the story. So here's the deal, Blastus has set up a meeting, and so even though the king is angry, and in fact, it says in that very first sentence that he was angry, that's not really the thrust of it, that word in Greek means violently angry, so that means he's carried out some military action against them already. They haven't paid their taxes, and here's what happened when you were a Roman province who didn't pay your taxes. They sent the army and they smoked you, that's exactly what happened, and they took their taxes from you. Rome did not play when it came to money. That's how they became so powerful. Powerful and somehow they've got the king's ear through Blastus, and they've got this treaty that's about to be formed, and yet we're going to see the real spirit, the real heart of Herod here uh, as it comes to how he viewed himself. Look at verse 21. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. Okay, so there are multiple words in Greek that represent throne. Luke was a medical doctor, so he specifically inspired by the Holy Spirit picked. This word. This is the word Bema. Anybody remember hearing about the Bema seat of Christ Jesus? That's the judgment seat. This is like the ultimate Judgment authority. So here's what Luke is saying about Herod Agrippa I. He thinks he's the ultimate authority. This shouldn't surprise us. Y'all do understand this. This shouldn't surprise us. The emperors in Rome Rome were self-proclaimed gods. They believed they were actually gods. And so he has gotten this, honestly, very paranoid great-granddad who thought he was a god. His best friends are emperors. They think they're gods. So he has set himself up in Jerusalem as the god of Israel. Literally, he, he is the voice. He is the one virtually promoting himself and claiming, therefore, to be God. And so there's going to be a repercussion for somebody who stands in opposition to God because what is the first of all the commandments? You will have no other gods before me, and that includes whom? Everybody. And so you can't even have yourself as God before me. And so, so here's where the trouble comes in. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And we go, well, well, that's really not Agrippa's fault. That's what the people did. Yet the responses, the responses are very different compared to Agrippa and people like Peter. Y'all remember when Peter went to Cornelius' house? Cornelius is a powerful Roman centurion. In fact, he controls hundreds of men. He would have been very politically connected, very militarily connected, and probably was a great warrior himself. Peter shows up at his house because he has been told by the Holy Spirit, have this guy Peter show up. Peter shows up. What's the first thing the centurion does? Cornelius bows down to worship him. And what was the very first thing Peter did? You stand up. I am a man just like you. You stand up. We we do not accept... The worship of people. We don't accept this type of praise because that belongs only to God. However, Herod Agrippa I has set himself up on the Bema seat. Luke uses this word on purpose. He considers himself the judge of the people when God is actually the judge of the people. And when they start claiming he's speaking with the voice of a God, so, so they're ascribing to him Godship. What does Luke not include? He leaves out that Herod in any way said, no, no, stop, I'm not God, that belongs to him. That's his glory, worship belongs only to the Lord. It's obvious that Herod Agrippa just soaked it. oh yes, yes, yes. He just received their praise as though he was a God. Now notice, remember, the Lord always will come against those who stand in opposition of him. Herod Agrippa has been causing great persecution of the New Testament church, the very early church. Look at verse 23, at once, The word there is ethios, it's immediately. At once an angel of the Lord struck him. The word struck him is patasso. Patasso is a very violent word in Greek. It means to slay, so as to kill. So so he didn't just like go strike him. The word literally means to slay. So at once he struck him because he did not give glory to God. So, So Luke does include this. Here's why God is punishing him. Because this guy is allowing himself to be ascribed as a God, and God has already forbidden that, plus the fact he's been persecuting the local church, and he was eaten by worms and died. I started to put you a picture up there of that one, but I was like, no, let's just don't do that. That's going to mess up somebody's breakfast in the second service. It's going to mess up somebody's lunch. Um, Here's what did not happen. So I want you to get this. Remember, we have historical accounts of this event outside of Scripture. Josephus, in case you have not heard of Josephus, Josephus was a first century historian for the Jews. He was not a Christian, but he reported many, many things that you also find in Scripture. He tells the story about Jesus, but not as Messiah. He tells the story of Jesus as a criminal because he was a Jew reporting history he reports this event and here's how his report went that herod was giving the speech that he doubled over in great abdominal pain they carried him to his room and within hours he was dead and parasites were seen on his body so so it's not like he fell in a ma- in a mass of worms right there on the throne he had this crippling abdominal pain, they cart him off to his palace, and within hours, this guy's dead, and there's parasitic worms everywhere. So, so literally how Luke, remember, Luke is a doctor, so, so literally how Luke wrote it, this is how God took care of this first level of opposition. He, he struck him, he slayed him, and it sounds like a very awful way to die. Ultimately, it sounds like a really bad way to die. But notice this. All right, so as God is removing opposition, notice what else is happening at the exact same time. Verse 24, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. Those who stand in opposition to the Lord, they will be removed. What's the Lord's word going to do? It's going to accomplish exactly what God set it out to do. And in case you don't know, that's exactly what's promised in Scripture, that the Lord's word would never return void as long as it's lifted up. The Lord's word... Not people, but the Lord's word will accomplish everything that it is designed to accomplish. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. Remember, they've been in Antioch. Incredible church growth there while persecutions happened in Jerusalem. Now they're coming back, and they're getting ready to be sanctioned for their next work. So we're about to get into these mission trips of Paul, and we'll look at this mission trip in just a minute. This is really his first one. Uh, as we talk about being sanctioned by the church, he and Barnabas are really about to be sanctioned. Verse, or chapter 13. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Uh, remember in Ephesians 4.11, it says God gave gifts to the church. You had the apostles, and then it said prophets. Well, some people have said those prophets, that refers to the Old Testament, and, and that's not actually correct. That gift already existed. Like, like the Old Testament was in place before the church was ever formed. But he said, I gave these gifts to the church in particular. One was the role of apostle, those 12 guys, and then we end up with the 13th, Matthias, after Judas hung himself. So we've got some apostles. There are others like James, the half-brother of Jesus, that Paul recognizes as well. And then there are the prophets. Prophetes literally means inspired preacher. That's all it means. A prophet is an inspired, meaning he's had a message from the Holy Spirit, a message from God. It's the same role that they had in the Old Testament, but you've got a prophetes, an inspired preacher-teacher. So it's like one role. It's prophet slash teacher. Ephesians 4.11 says the same thing. God gave these gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, which were the church planters, and then pastor-teachers. So it's kind of a slash. And so here's some of the first of the inspired preachers and teachers of the early church. Barnabas, notice Barnabas is listed. Obviously, he is a focus of Luke at this point. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And Saul is who we're going to be calling just in a few minutes, Paul. We're about to go to the last name. Remember, his last name was Paulus. That's where the word Paul came from. Verse 2, as they were worshiping. Okay, so here's the deal. As they were worshiping, so as you are worshiping, um, the most common word in Greek for worship is proskeneo, which literally means to bow yourself down. And all that means is this. You recognize you're not God and he is. That's what worship is. You are worshiping God. Every time you recognize you're not God and he is, that's worship. That's not this word. The word that's used here, and any time we see a word change, that's important to us. This is le toyero. It's where we get the word liturgy. Anybody know what liturgy is? Liturgy is just like religious practice. So, so like if you go to some churches, we say, oh, they're very liturgical, meaning this. They've got lots of things that you do, and it's very scripted. Well, understand this. That's this word that's used here. So, so they had a very obvious form of worship. Like they didn't show up and it was just chaos. In fact, Paul spends a whole lot of the letter to the Corinthian church correcting some chaos in worship. There, there was liturgy in worship. How do we know what that liturgy looks like? I told you this before. Uh, there was this governor and this governor was a Roman governor. He'd heard about the church. He was curious, what are they doing? Is that Judaism? Is it not Judaism? So he sent a spy He said, here's all I want you to do. I want you to write down what they do. Well, here's what the spy wrote down that their liturgy looked like. They sang hymns, hallel's, worship songs. And they sang the Psalms. So they they did what we've just got through doing. They said prayers of faith. This is a spy writing this down about the early Christian church. They said prayers of faith. And then some devoted teachers or dedicated teachers. He used the word dedicated. I don't think he meant like their study habits. He just meant these are being recognized as teachers. they had been set apart as teachers. Then these teachers got up and they taught the words of Jesus. So they taught the words of Jesus. And then they had some more prayers. And then they had a collection for the poor. Uh, we call that almsgiving. So remember, the early church kept some of the Jewish tenets. One of those was prayer, another was fasting, uh, another one was giving to the poor. And that's all he wrote. So do understand, they had worship services, and they had orders of worship back in the early church. Now, they probably didn't print them out, and, and nobody else knew what that was, but everybody understood what worship was. And, and so here we are in 2019, believe it or not, doing the same letterier that they did back in the early church. So if you've ever wondered how we kind of got what worship looks like, well, we got it from Scripture, but we also got it from a spy who went to spy on the church. So notice what they were doing. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so fasting was a part of their worship, the Holy Spirit said, all right, so here's the deal. When you walk out and look at this back wall, I told you last week to take a picture of it. When you walk out and look at that back wall, one of the five functions of the church is what? Worship. When a church worships the way it's supposed to worship, which is glorifying God, guess who shows up and speaks to his people? The Holy Spirit, every time. Every time. And so notice, the Holy Spirit said, you want to hear the Holy Spirit more clearly? Worship more clearly. Worship more intentionally. Make it a true act of worship. Here's what he told them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Uh, This is what we've done as a church before. We have ordained several deacons since I've been here. I haven't had the privilege here yet of ordaining somebody into ministry. There's a couple of ordinations. What the church does is the church acknowledges when God has set somebody apart, and we do that by laying on of hands and praying over them and then sending them off to do whatever God's called them to do. Well, this is exactly what this is. This is virtually ordination is what you just heard. Now, they probably didn't have a little certificate and didn't hand it out like we do, but that's exactly what they just did. They just set these men apart, for ministry, and they recognize that. So verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and before they, or from there they sailed to Cyprus. So I've given you a picture. So here they are in Antioch. Uh, they've gone to Seleucia. That's a port city. Now they're gonna sail down all the way down to Cyprus, and they're gonna land at Salamis in just a minute. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Okay, remember, where'd they go first? First to the Jews every time. Why? Because they had the Old Testament in common. So they went to a place where they had some scripture in common and then they would just espouse on it and say, hey, all these prophecies about Messiah, let us tell you who Messiah is. And that's when they would get stoned every time. So they would start out going, hey, all these prophecies, hey, they point to Jesus. <laughs> there come the rocks every time because this is what they did. They're going to proclaim that Jesus is Messiah. Messiah. They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John. This is John Mark as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer. Okay, so um, sorcerer can mean a couple things, but Luke was very specific in the word that he chose. It's magos, where we get magician, and it means, literally it means in Greek, trickster. So, he's not saying this guy actually has evil powers. Now, he may be motivated by evil, but what he's saying is this. This guy's tricking the people. This is all deceit. This is not real. He has no real power, yet he is tricking the people. He was a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. Um, Bar means kind of instead of or in place of. So, so he he is claiming then some messianic title. He's tricking people to thinking he has power, and he's claiming some form of messianic power. That's all this means. That's why he's called Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This is kind of cool. Now, this is Luke, a doctor, saying Paulus is a pretty sharp dude. And so that's going to be good because, remember, belief is something that happens in the mind. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. Why? Because it's obvious the Holy Spirit's going before them. The Holy Spirit has led them there, and now this guy wants to hear the truth about God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name. Here's what that means. Elymas is an Aramaic term, and what it means in Aramaic is sorcerer. So, so, So literally, his name is sorcerer. He opposed them. Remember, those who are in opposition to the Lord, what's the Lord do? He overcomes, removes whatever he may do. Opposed them and tried to turn the pro away from the faith. It, let, let me explain. To turn from, he's not telling him not to believe. The word there is diastrefo. He uses the exact same ploy that Satan used with Eve. Eve never, Eve was never told by Satan not to believe God. Not once was he. He didn't say, "Oh, God's a liar." Satan never said that. What did he do? He took truth and he perverted truth. That's what this word means. All he did was, was take truth. Hey, man, that Saul and that Barnabas, mm, yeah, they're teaching Scripture. Oh, but pro-council, you need to... He, he would put a spin on it. He would pervert truth. So he doesn't say they're lying. He just says you need to be cautious. But Saul, also called Paul, so now Saul is Paul, Paulus, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the Lemus. Listen, Paul, I'm telling you, before he got stoned to the point of death, this dude was a fighter. We know that he was because he tried to eliminate and murder the church. Uh, And so, again, he's got his stare, you know, the stank eye, we call it. He's got the stare on a lemus. And he said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, enemy of all that is right. Ekthros, enemy means in opposition to. What are we talking about? Anything that is in opposition of the Lord is going to be defeated. It's going to be overcome. It's going to be removed. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Straight and narrow are those who come to Jesus. Broad, wide are those who do not. He's like, okay, there's a path of people trying to get to the truth, and you're perverting it. You're, you're causing there to be a diversion. You're leading them against it. Now look, the Lord's hand is against you, those in opposition of the Lord. You're going to be blind, and you will not see the sun for a time. The word time there actually means an error or an age, so this sounds like it's long-term, not temporary immediately a mist and darkness fell on him. Okay, so when I say darkness, here's what you think. A mist, so it's kind of cloudy, but it gets really, really black, and that's not the word. The word there for darkness is skotos. Skotos is the abode of evil. So not only can he not see clearly what is now impacting his mind, fear and anxiousness of evil. He is fully aware of all the evil that is now around him and maybe even in him. This guy could very easily be possessed. And so the Lord has taken his hand off completely and now put this negative curse on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Once again, the Lord's word accomplished what it was set out to do. Church, when I was studying this, this reminded me of Saddam Hussein, and again, this is not a political statement of all. This is not something saying I'm pro-war. I'm just telling you this reminded me of kind of what took place with Saddam. Y'all remember he was captured, and he was literally down in a hole like the rats. So here's a guy who was one of the most powerful men in the world, reduced to cowering down in a hole, and one of our military forces snatched him up. And so they take him to stand trial before this newly established government. And what you may not remember about that was the four men he had to stand in front of, one of those men had been in one of Saddam's torture chambers. So so one of these men knew exactly what Saddam had done. In fact, Saddam was credited with about two million deaths, in case you're not... Y'all don't remember all that. All of it genocide, much of it his own people. Chemical warfare, all kind of experimental type things, just evil stuff, very similar to what the Nazi government did. But if you never saw the news relating to this, he spent 30 minutes in front of this new judging council. They confronted him over the deaths of all these people and the actions that they had listed. Literally, they had all these crimes listed out. Did you know not once, not once did he ever acknowledge any of that. In fact, he justified all of his actions and he was defiant to the core. In fact, he cursed their God. Now, keep in mind, this is a Muslim nation, so he cursed Allah, but guess who he also cursed? I don't know if y'all remember this or not. He cursed the God of the Americans, the God of the Christians. Now, here's what was kind of funny to me. Saddam Hussein, as evil as they get, views our nation as Christian and over half of our nation doesn't view itself as Christian. That's kind of weird. Uh, but, But again, even this enemy, He cursed Allah, which again, you and I believe is a false god. But he also cursed the God of the Christians. He didn't call him by name. He said, but I curse the God of America. I curse the God of the Christians. Uh, About three days after that, this was the next picture we got of Saddam. Uh, Saddam Hussein was hung. Three days later, he was sentenced to death, and this is what took place. And so, again, what this reminded me of was this. Not, again, that I'm promoting war, that this was a holy war. Here's what I'm saying. God is never in favor of genocide, no matter who you are or what your religion is. If you're killing thousands upon thousands of your own people at some point, God will get involved, and God will bring destruction to that, and it is going to fall. And so we're right back to that same thought that whatever, whoever, anything that stands in opposition of the Lord does not stand a chance. I mean, it's not a chance that they're going to win because you're going against the God creator of the universe. So what is our challenge in all this? Well, here's the challenge I want you to focus on, but I'm going to end someplace a little bit differently. But however, this is where we want to start. We want to avoid ending up on the wrong side. So here's what I'm saying. You want to make sure you're never standing in opposition to God. You want to make sure you're never standing in opposition of God. And you're like, well, Justin, that's an easy one. Man, you know, I may not be the brightest bulb in the bunch, but I'll, I'll tell you this, I'm definitely not dumb enough to take on God. Okay, so, so let's talk through a couple of things I want you to consider, but then I want us to end differently when it comes to our time of prayer. Number one, assign credit where credit is due. Remember what Agrippa I did? People started recognizing him as God, and what did he do? Oh, he just soaked it up. He never once downplayed it. And here's what you would say to me as a Christ follower. I would never say I am God. You know what? And I said, I guarantee you wouldn't. You are so smart. You would never do that. But but here's what I know that we also do. I also know that we substitute a lot of things in place of God as our top priority. Work, family, hobbies, convenience, happiness, which is not the same as joy. There's lots of things that Christians put in place of God, not in a blatant way. We're not claiming, Lord, I'm going to hold up my work as God and you come second to work. We would never say that. But yet if I were to look at your calendar and how much time you spend working as opposed to how much time you spend in the word or in prayer or in fasting or in worship, what would that reflect when it comes down to the calendar? Even family, something that God created for our benefit and our joy can become an idol and a God to us as opposed to the God of the universe being God to us. And sometimes it's not what we blatantly do, it's what we don't do. You remember I said less than half, less than 50% of our nation claims to be Christian now. We y'all aware of that? Less than half of our nation claims to be born again evangelical Christian. And yet many of us will stand and get emotional. Listen, I've watched it, and I'm not trying to be critical, but I've watched it. I've watched worship songs being sung, and people stay in their seats, and you start playing the national anthem, and everybody in the room stands up. Please hear me. You'll never have a pastor more patriotic than this one. But I don't worship America. I worship the God who allowed it to be created. I will serve it. I will be loyal to it. I will die for it. But if we're going to stand in honor of anything, it needs to be in honor of God. And what happens is we become emotional and we lose sight of the truth. And so, again, we need to assign credit where credit is due. Number two, trust that the Word of God is going to accomplish its mission. Here at our church, we set out to do one thing on Sunday, especially on Sunday. But on Sunday, we want to do one thing. We want to make sure that the Word of God gets taught. We're not here to entertain, we're not here to please, we're not here to be the cutting edge, we're not here to do the exciting event. What we're here to do is to make sure the Word of God gets taught, because here's what I get from Scripture, it's always going to accomplish what God sets it out to do. Not what I set it out to do, it's not mine. What God sets it out to do. And so we're always going to be a teaching-minded, a teaching-focused, a Scripture-focused church. That's what we're going to do because this is exactly what God tells us. So if I'm not in opposition to God, I do what God shows me in his word. Number three, we acknowledge those set apart for special service. Uh, we, we are always looking for other deacon candidates. Our deacon body's really good about that, looking for deacon candidates. And, and Jeff and I in particular are working with a young man right now who thinks he has a vocational call, and I hope he does. If that vocational call is legit from the Lord, if not, I've told him, if God will let you do anything else, keep doing that. However, if he's told you, you better go do this, you better start now because he won't go away. He'll just keep pestering you until you do what you're supposed to do. And so, again, we're always to be looking for those that are set apart for some type of special service. And, And that can be church world, but that can be as an educator. Listen, there are no greater influencers in the world than teachers. None. Our teachers and those that work in our school systems, there are no greater influences. But here's the other thing we need to be looking for, and you need to be encouraging your kids and grandkids. Y'all, we need Christian politicians. You want things to be changed at the top? Then we need to put Christians at the top. Right? Yeah, that's the way it works. We love to gripe and complain about the top, but, but are we doing anything to generate and, and push our own kids towards those roles? That was never done with me. I'll be honest with you. I'm not being critical of my parents and my church. No one ever mentioned to me, hey, you, you, you score pretty good in school. You need to think about politics. I don't know that I would have been interested. I really don't know. But nobody ever mentioned that to me. Politics is what somebody else does. No, actually, we need political Christians. We need Christians pushing the agenda of Scripture. Less than 50% of our nation now professes to be born again. And then finally, number four, be discerning in order to determine validity. What I mean by that is this. Remember Elymas, the sorcerer? He was tricking people into thinking what he said was true. Remember, his name was Bar-Jesus. He's a false prophet. He's not just a magician. He's a false prophet. Listen, it's amazing to me um, that there's a lot of false prophets that get really built up. And at some point, their empires come crashing down. Uh, the most recent Benny Hinn. Again, not being critical. These are statements he made about himself, not me. He, he has pointed out that all this stuff was rigged and set up and fake. I'm not gonna, sure what they're going to do with the millions of dollars that they've taken from people. Uh, we'll see how that plays out in the future. But, but again, we're always looking, always discerning. Don't always think that just because it's big, it's better. Don't always think just because it's popular. It's true. Be sure you know what truth is so you can then discern truth. But here's how I want to end. Okay, so we've talked through this. I think this is what our text teaches. But this is an aspect that I didn't put on the screen that I just want you to focus on for just a minute. Remember, anything, not just a person, anything that stands in opposition of the Lord doesn't stand a chance. And you know what the Lord has created you to be? The Bible says he's created you to be more than a conqueror. You are a victor. Now, he's also promised difficulty and challenge, but none of those were designed to defeat you. They're designed to grow you, to increase your endurance, to increase your perseverance, to deepen your faith. And and so some of you came into the room today and you've got some opposition. You've got physical issues that you're battling. You've got some pending surgeries that you're facing. Some of you are facing other types of opposition. You've got a sin issue that you have battled, and you've got a critical spirit, or you've got a tongue that is just speaking violence against other people. You've got this this greed, you're never content, whatever it may be, there's just a host of different sins. Please hear me. That sin does not stand a chance against a holy God because his son has already paid the penalty for it. If you're a Christ follower, your penalty's been paid, you need to ditch it today. And so, For some of you, it may be anxiousness and fear. I was talking to somebody out in the lobby this morning, and I was talking about someone I know very dearly who is just consumed all the time with worry and anxiousness. You know what the Scripture tells us about that? That is a sin. It doesn't mean that we won't be concerned. It doesn't mean you'll never be fearful. It doesn't mean you at times will not be worryful. But what it means is you will not be controlled by it. You will come out of it, and you will go back into battle. Some people choose to stay over here on the sidelines because they're afraid. Here's the deal. That is a tool and a lie of Satan. You have nothing to be afraid of. In the end, we win no matter what, right? Paul says, in death I win because I'm with Jesus. If Jesus comes back before I die, we win because Jesus comes back. So Revelation, summed up, we win. That is the simplest lesson on Revelation you'll ever get. And so here's the deal. Whatever you're in opposition to today, whatever is opposing you, that is the same as opposing the Lord. And you need to take that to him today. So whether you do that where you sit, where you stand in just a minute, or at this altar, that's completely up to you. Or maybe, maybe it's you looking back over this list going, you know what? Maybe, maybe the things I've been doing are more about me and not as much about God as they should be. Maybe I'm not existing as much for his glory as I am focused on my own little world right now, and that's just selfish. So, so look at our list. Think about what may be in opposition to you, and I'm sure you can find something today that you need to take to the Lord, that he needs to get out of your way. Get this obstacle gone so you can keep forward on your journey. But but before we pray, I want to say this one last thing. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, Justin, oh, that sounds great, and I want to have God on my side. I want to have the Lord fighting for me. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I don't know that he is. Here, here's all I have to offer you today, because I can't change that for you, but I can tell you this, Jesus can change that for you. And maybe he had you come here today just so you could hear this, so he could say, hey, I want to fight for you too. I want to be for you, not against you. I want to remove the things that are opposing you or help you through those things. Uh, If you're interested in that today, if you would say, Justin, I I want the Lord fighting for me. I don't think I know him in that way. Can you help me? The answer is yes, but here's how we do that in our church. When I start to pray in just a minute, everybody's going to be standing. Here's what I want you to do, right? When I start to pray, I want you to walk right over here to these doors. And there's going to be some members of what we call our prayer response team. And they're going to be there to greet you. Uh, They've been praying for you already. And you're like, they knew I was coming. No, they're trusting that the Lord's word is going to do what it's supposed to do. And here's what they're counting on. When they stand over there every Sunday, they're waiting for somebody to come to them who just says, hey, I want the Lord fighting for me. I want the Lord fighting for me. Or maybe, maybe today you want one of our team members just to pray with you. Maybe there's this opposition thing you're facing. And you know you're a Christ follower and you just want somebody on that team just to take you where it's more private and just pray with you over that issue. Whatever it is the Lord wants you to do, this is our time to respond.